This week's episode is brought to you by the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo. We're kind of marrying up our first party data. So what we know about our customer age demo, what they like, uh, marrying that up with an influencer, they'll create content. And then we're plugging into their account and pushing it out, um, which really gives us this beautiful secondary presence um, and gaining trust and credibility by, again, just seeing our pieces through the eyes and spaces of someone else. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. The average person spends two and a half hours every day scrolling through social media. So it's obvious that social media is important to any brand or retailer that wants to reach and resonate with their consumers. But as we start to think through social media, We also have to consider which platforms consumers are turning to, the content that they're consuming, and most of all, the tactics or approaches to messaging and marketing that lead to consumer action or going to an e-commerce site or going to a store. It's a very complex and ever-evolving discussion, and it's why we wanted to dig into this topic at the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo this past June. We featured a panel of incredible executives from across retail categories, HealthAid, which is a CPG slash beverage brand, PacSun, which many know, they're a youth apparel and accessories retailer, And finally, Sundays, which is in the home slash furniture category. And we did this because we really wanted to ensure that our audience gleaned some actionable insights and takeaways, regardless from where they sat in the retail industry. But most of all, we wanted to call out some of the overarching trends and realities that many brands are facing as they try to keep pace with the ever-evolving social media landscape, but also stand out to consumers. And our incredible panel dug into everything from content creation to messaging to issues around measurement. So hopefully, no matter what type of brand you're sitting with today, you'll be able to get some new ideas and inspiration to guide your social commerce strategy. Without further ado, let me uh, introduce our esteemed panel. So um, we're going to be digging into social commerce. And we have four folks. So we'll start with, we have Tyler McDonald, who's the Senior Manager of Influencers and Social Media at PacSun. We have Charlotte Mostied. Mostead, sorry, so close. Uh, Chief Marketing Officer at HealthAid, Kelly Sawkins, the VP of E-Commerce and Marketing at Sundays, and Kaylee Moore, contributor for Forbes, covering retail, e-commerce, and direct-to-consumer businesses with a focus on fashion, beauty, and luxury. So welcome and take it away. Thank you. All right, so we are going to start by walking through a couple just quick slides here, and it'll give you a little bit of context about what each of our panelists today are working through, and so I will let them get to it. So there we are, in case you're wondering. All right. All righty, so Sundays, we are a D2C company founded in 2019, and really we came to be to solve for furniture shopping can be overwhelming. 
Uh, we have a very tightly curated collection, um, a smaller skew count than most furniture companies. And our focus is on design, quality, um, design details. We have lots of performance fabrics, rounded edges on tables. Um, our customer is 25 to 45 years old. Um, you know, family focus, lots of pets, and looking for that high quality. We offer free delivery, and we have a handful of showrooms in primary markets, Vancouver, Calgary, Toronto, and we've recently opened one in Seattle. Hi, everyone. I'm Charlotte Mosted. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at HealthAid Kombucha. Um, kombucha was found, or HealthAid Kombucha was founded in 2012 at a Brentwood farmer's market. Um, literally three founders coming together with a big idea on a big entrepreneurial ambition they had. They started there, grew out to many farmers markets in the LA area, and now it's over $300 million in retail sales in over 50,000 stores in the country. And we are the number two kombucha brand. So very exciting growth and trajectory. I joined in late 2020, so middle of the pandemic, lockdown. Um, and I, I came at a point where we were really positioned to grow to that next phase of growth. The brand had done an amazing job doing that first 100, 150 million. And then we needed to really scale and get beyond the existing plateau that we were at and also perform in a digital environment. That's where a lot of retail shopping was happening. We had a very new e-commerce channel that we were growing and that we were seeing expansive growth with. So um, since then, we've really retooled everything about our marketing mix and our marketing model um, and positioning ourselves to perform in both a brick and mortar and DTC and e-commerce led environment, keeping an eye on the most efficient, effective spends and really thinking about our consumer, putting our consumer first, learning from them, professionalizing the way that we go about marketing um, in a way that had never done prior to 2020. Our consumer is largely female, but a pretty good mix, highly coastal. But the most important thing is that they've realized that they want to take care of their health and make different choices about the beverages they consume. They're very interested in organic, natural food ingredients, and they've come to kombucha for that satisfying, delicious, craving, you know, craveable bubbles with a benefit. Um, gut health is on the rise, and it's something that we're incredibly passionate about. We want to inspire everyone to follow their gut to experience their healthiest and happiest selves. Um, I'm Tyler. I am from PacSun. I'm the Associate Brand Director. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with PacSun, um, we are a fashion and lifestyle company um, specifically centered around Gen Z. So it's really that 16 to 24 customer um, that we are hyper-focused on. Um, so across from obviously our unique collaborations and product assortments, I think um, another thing that we are hyper-focused on obviously is social media and the world within influencers and also new ways to activate. So today we'll be talking about some of our efforts um, across TikTok, particularly with live stream shopping, um, Roblox, and how we've really been showing up um, in the last few years over there. Um, and again, as well as some of our unique collaborations, um, most recently with the Met, um, in Formula One and just really discovering new ways to really connect with that Gen Z consumer. Thank you. All right. So our first question here that we're going to dive into, I want to talk a little bit about taking a full channel approach across 
all of the various ad channels. And everyone sitting in this room knows that there are so many today. So I want to I want to hear a little bit about what are the challenges that entails and how are you dealing with them? So let's start here. Okay, great. So yeah, we are taking a full funnel approach across. We have a presence on Meta, Google, uh, TikTok, and Pinterest. And how we're doing that, we've divided our, um, our targeting into both prospecting and remarketing. And within each of those funnel stages, we're experimenting with both developing our own creative, um, where we can really control the imagery, the story, the copy, and then also DABA or dynamic marketing, where we're reaching a broader base. Um, within Dynamic, we've also prioritized and spent a lot of time on exactly what those images are, just again to kind of control what's going out in market. So an example of that, um, rather than say featuring CeeLo or white background images, um, we've come in and curated uh, lifestyle images so that users in these um, dynamic viewpoints are seeing our furniture kind of in real life. Um, a challenge I'd say for us is because we're furniture, we have a higher AOV, so we sit kind of around that $2,500 mark, and so learning phases can be long for us. And how we've combated that is we've moved up the funnel a little bit, and so when we're going after um, optimizing for conversion, we'll target, say, an, an add-to-cart action versus a purchase. Um, another piece with our uh, funnel that we prioritize this year is not only in our ad creative, but our landing pages. So a lot of time and effort on just reevaluating what that experience is. Um, we, we pulled in a middle layer uh, between our ads and now our site that is marrying up both the products that users are seeing in ads uh, to what they're discovering on the landing page. And it's allowed us to really prioritize our like RTBs, reasons to buy, our differentiators. Um, we're consciously pulling in social proof, um, be that you know reviews or media references, while also enabling that, um, that shopping functionality. And then maybe the final tidbit that um, you know that I'll end with is around just managing it all. I mean, it's a lot of creative. I <laughs> yes. think this is going to be a red thread through. <laughs> I anticipate all of our responses, and uh, a tool that our team has actually implemented in the last call it 18 months is Miro. And if you're not familiar with it, it's kind of like a a digital um, board where creative can implement or insert all of the creative that they're producing across, um, across channels. And then on the business, we can come in and easily pick it up. You know, I don't work in Adobe, per se, so I can see the files. And what it's done is it's very collaborative. So I can go in and comment. We can real time kind of uh, start to document what's performing and what isn't. And then it's really created a playbook for us so that we can go back and easily see kind of by month, by channel, by swim lane. Uh, what we've put in market, what's worked, what hasn't, uh, for easy iteration. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating listening to you because I feel like it's a template for how so many DTC businesses are trying to evolve and use data and, and get better at even the knowledge that they do have because that's, I think, one of the biggest challenges we have. I'll start from the beginning, though. Um, we do embrace a full funnel approach as we go to market with HealthAid, and that's because we have a full omni-channel retailer experience to support. We need to support the 95% of our business that's sold through brick and mortar 
and then as well the DTC channels. And you know, we've we've vacillated from one end to the other of do we go all digital so we can see every single KPI that's out there and you know turn the nozzles up and down accordingly. Or do we also embrace a little bit of discomfort of not knowing exactly the attribution, exactly what happens when you put an out-of-home billboard somewhere, for example. Um, this year, we've really embraced a spectrum of those activities. So we have major partnerships that you know, we're partnering with the Dodgers for the first time. For the first time ever, Healthy Kombucha is available at Dodger Stadium. It's very difficult to attach a KPI to that. Um, we will be selling it on-premise, which is amazing. We don't expect that that's going to be our highest retail location for sales. It's just simply not prevalent enough throughout the stadium for it to be the place where most people are going to get their kombucha. But it's an important touch point for us, and we know that this partnership is a great awareness play for us. I still don't know exactly how I'm going to measure that at the end of the year, but we'll be searching for those KPIs that matter, and of course looking for the data stories that exist. We then have our conversion-based marketing at the far end of the other spectrum, where we're burdening that with AOV and click-through and, and really looking to optimize that funnel to get the highest ROAS we can get so that we can support the sales that we need to make. Um, so I would say as, as, we as we categorize the challenges, measurement, attribution, those things really are supreme in how we think about it. But I would say I'm comfortable with the level of of uncertainty and ambiguity because I realize and I've seen in my CPG career that awareness marketing works, brand partnerships work, traditional media types work. And that's because there's a lot of storytelling that happened with those brand building campaigns and things that you just can't get if you're doing only conversion-based marketing to a very small cohort of people that want to buy a glass, 12 glass bottles of kombucha online. Right? That is not the everyday person. So I can't use those measurement tools for every single thing in my business. Um, and so we have to lean in on brand building and marketing because that's where the storytelling and the long-term brand equity gets built. Yeah, I think you guys covered a lot of it, so <laughs> I, I won't repeat too much. I think the only other insight that I can probably give from the brand side specifically, I think one of the challenges that we're currently facing is the ad creative um, and how to bring that to life. I think traditionally um, it's come from a video team that's made um, a very high quality ad that we've repurposed across TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube, et cetera. <laughs> and I think um, specifically when it comes to Gen Z, what we're seeing is they really love a more raw and organic ad. And I think the difficulty is figuring out which platform to put which ad on, because I think they all speak a different language, right? So I think when we're creating an ad for TikTok, um, we know that the customer wants entertainment, um, a little bit of knowledge around fashion and styling. But I think when they're on Pinterest, um, they're looking for much more like fashion inspo. And I think when they're on YouTube, they're probably looking for more of a tutorial. So really working with the creative team, the brand team, the social team, the video team, um, and making sure we're having weekly meetings around what ads we kind of are putting out into market, what we're testing, um, and how we're speaking the languages of each platform. Yeah, I want to stay with you for a minute because yeah. that plays into the next question of where does user-generated content fall within this mix and how do you leverage it? So can you speak to that a little yeah. bit? Yeah, I mean, we're, 
We're very lucky at Paxson, I think, because we do have such a large demographic um, of influencers and also just active community members. I think that 16 to 24 audience is naturally very active in creating their own type of videos um, on, on the channels. But I think um, in general, a time and a place, we love to do a mix of creating our own content in-house from the social team, whether it's going into the stores, doing their own trial, um, try-on videos, and then we do love mixing in um, specific influencer content, if, if that's what you're speaking of. Yeah. But yeah, I think it's a, it's a healthy mix, and I do still think there's a place for the more um, high-quality ad from the video team, too. Again, I think it's just being strategic about what platform it's going on and how it's being um, served to the consumer. Yeah. What about in the context of kombucha? How does user-generated content, how do you leverage it? How do you use it? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say we want to do more and more, but as Tyler mentioned, it's actually harder than you think to go lo-fi. You know, it, it's a little bit of a paradox um, because, you know, back in the day, you created with your agency your set of assets, and then you put them everywhere in the world, and you tried to leverage as much as you could out of those glossy yeah. brand marketing messages, and people were used to seeing it. Now with influencer marketing, with the desire for authenticity, it's changed the game completely. So whether it's creating something that looks UGC or truly leveraging UGC, we're infusing that throughout our entire funnel. And we're seeing that those real face-to-camera interactions of, hey, I drink kombucha and I love it, matters a lot. Because especially with a product like kombucha, it sounds kind of weird. And you know, as I've been walking around the conference, I've been asking people, or they've been asking what I do, and I'm so surprised. You know, I get out of my LA bubble, and whoa, people don't know what it is, and they're very worried about what it is. And there's a lot of misinformation out there. And so having a real person tell it to somebody is gold for us. It's just how do you actually? automate that in a way that still feels on brand. And so what we've had to do at the health aid side is really release our agenda a little bit and say, we're going to allow a good level of UGC or IGC to be created that we have some input on, but not a ton. And then we're going to complement that with video storytelling and you know really creative big campaigns that sort of bring you through the entire brand universe so that we're still building the equity that we control that we want. Um, but we've implemented things in our marketing mix, um, working with partners like The Lobby, et cetera, to have a huge base of micro-creators from which we can pull that we just didn't do before. Um, but we're loving the results and we're seeing as we get better and better at it that we can leverage it more and more. I love what you're saying too, just about micro really quick, because I will hop in on that. I think um, we've done a lot of macro influencer plays, and I think what we're seeing now too is an interesting shift in like the trust of the influencer, um, and if it's just a hashtag ad, for example. So I think there is a lot of value in getting the community involved, whether it's like your store associates, your HQ employees, the people who actually work for your company, the customer who's actually going to the store. What we're seeing with TikTok is people are becoming influencers overnight. Like it's the day of the influencer. It's the everyday influencer. Um, you can post a video and all of a sudden you have so much power in what you're saying. So I think there is a lot of value, again, in really giving back to the community and using their voices to help 
tell your brand story versus paying a high dollar amount for some, you know, celebrity, which I feel like was the thing probably 10 years ago, um, you know, to, to have them tell a story for you. I think Gen Z and specifically just people in general are kind of looking at influencer a little bit differently now. What about furniture? That's a slightly different consumer, you know, for a very different market. How, how do you see it play out there? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we're, we're pretty lucky in that uh, for, you, for UGC and for influencers that we're partnering with, um, many of them are seeking our product and, you know, they care about what their space looks. And so there's a natural match there. Often cases they're reaching out to us. Um, you know, we also reach out as well, but there's that, that nice kind of ebb and flow. Um, and so with UGC, something we've actually started experimenting with uh, a little bit in addition to the program that we've built out more on the organic front is um, on the ad side, uh, we're starting to negotiate upfront in our influencer contracts the use of ad rights. And uh, we recently, um, as an example, pulled in you know, carousel ads that were solely produced by influencers, very intentionally put the handle of the influencer on that. Whether the, the customer knows exactly who it is or isn't, I think it lends trust and credibility um, and also offers variety so that um, users are seeing our pieces in spaces that are not just our own. Um, so that's been very successful. We're seeing, you know, high, um, higher than average engagement, so click-through rates on those ads when comparing to overall campaign. Um, another area that uh, we've started to dabble in, and I know other brands are playing more in this space, is around whitelisting. And for anyone who isn't familiar with what that is, it's kind of like white labeling. So think of a manufacturer tech, you go in and somebody's producing something and then you come in and relabel it as your own. So same idea with white listing. We're partnering with influencers who we know have an aesthetic that is matching our own. We're kind of marrying up our first party data. So what we know about our customer age demo, what they like, uh, marrying that up with an influencer, they'll create content, and then we're plugging into their account and pushing it out, um, which really gives us this beautiful secondary presence um, and gaining trust and credibility by, again, just seeing our pieces through the eyes and spaces of someone else. Well, and it also makes it actually an efficient and effective tool. I think influencer marketing has skyrocketed, right? Um, but also the cost can be really extreme. And so by being able to whitelist, which is something we are adamant about as well, we're able to amplify that and use it for way more than just their exact audience. Um, and that's something that I've put in practice you know, at the brands I've worked on for years now because the, the math doesn't make sense if you don't. Um, it can be very expensive to work with an influencer. And sure, 100,000 followers sounds great. That's like a micro-influencer these days. Um, <laughs> But it's actually not enough. You need those yeah. millions of eyeballs. Yeah. And you want every piece of content, if it's great, to go way farther than the 100,000 followers. Because, oh, by the way, only 10 to 13% are going to see them anyways. Um, so it's something that I, we've been doing as well. And I think the fascinating thing, though, is that it's still a very clunky experience. Um, and the mechanics behind the scenes and, and making sure that you're negotiating it up front is incredibly important. Are you ready to explore the evolved customer journey where content, community, and commerce converge? At the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo, you'll learn how brands and retailers are embracing new consumer insights 
new technologies and new destinations to create relevant and resonant experiences. Taking place on June 4th through the 6th at McCormick Place in Chicago, the Retail Innovation Conference and Expo will bring some of the brightest minds in the industry together for unique networking and learning opportunities, including keynote speaker, marketing expert, and author of For the Culture, Marcus Collins. Check out the show notes to register today. A tidbit about the clunkiness that I would add that has been a learning for us is around um, music licensing. So there have actually been <laughs> numerous cases where um, an influencer has produced a beautiful piece of content. We've gone to plug into it and Meta has said, no, no, no. Um, and so that's been a learning for us as well, pulling that up into the contract and, and just asking them to reference the, um, the Meta uh, music library. Um, there's a lot of rigor around that that can prevent you from posting. Yeah, we had to do that as well. And I think putting that into the contract is super important. Um, or even just giving like voiceovers. I love a good voiceover ad um, without music. Again, just making it feel more organic. But yeah, nego negotiating that good up tip. is Good tip, good one, yeah. Um, so this lends itself nicely to the next question, which is we're talking a lot about social advertising. Does the traditional glossy ad still have a place? And if so, how, how are you leveraging the more traditional advertising format of like a magazine or you know, some other form of print media? I mean, I, I would say yes, right? So at HealthAid, we definitely do it all. Um, we have the glossy ads that come to you in your social media feed or in your reels that are the brand message that we need to push out at the given time um, in a very product-centric way. We then have you know, all of the remarketing and retargeting ads. They're going to follow you until you make a purchase. Um, so sorry about that. Um, <laughs> and then, the, yeah, there's opportunities for print out of home. We're even going to be doing radio. There's still tons of listeners on radio. And so I think we can talk all day about thriving and dying media types. But the, rea the reality is, is that people experience things in a variety of different ways. And we're loving radio and podcasting for that, that voice and that real authentic storytelling about the testimonial of drinking kombucha, et cetera. So that's something that you can actually get in radio, which is really funny, right? Why would we be talking about radio in 2023? But it's still a medium in which thousands and millions of people are listening to it every day. So it's an important thing that we're looking at is a spectrum of storytelling as well as the spectrum of media types that we're using. Print is interesting. Um, there's still readers out there. Of course, it's something that we look at very critically with an eye towards you know the cost and, and the rate base as well as their consumer base. But we, we use it all. Yeah, I think um, there is, like you were saying, a time and a place. I think we are definitely hyper-focused on mainly digital and catching the consumer on their phone, um, since that's really where the Gen Z consumer is for the most part. Um, but when it comes to a glossy ad, I, I don't want to repeat what you said, but I also think it's about getting your brand message out there um, in a very controlled way. So whether it's a campaign video that has been created that's super important um, to the brand and telling that story, there is a, a place for it across platforms. Again, I think it's just about making sure it's right for the platform that it goes on, whether it's the time frame or the text that goes along with it um, or the music background, for example. Um, and I think, again, mixing that with your organic and more raw content and really getting a learning up front of 
what is doing better and then kind of going with A or B. Um, but I think from an impression standpoint, getting it in front of the consumer is still a very important thing. And I think it also just really depends on the consumer base. You know, Gen Z is not yes. going to be reading a print magazine. No, yeah, we are. And you guys need Gen Z yes. absolutely to be your co your co cohort yes. in order to grow. Whereas with kombucha, like we want every single person to be drinking this in right. their daily routine, and we we have a good base across millennials, Gen X, etc. So you know, we are, we're not so stuck in having to be really winning with one generation versus another, mm -hmm. which I think is a, a big yes. nuance between the two of yes. our brands. Podcasts are interesting, though. We, ha we have yeah. been exploring yeah, say more. Um, the rise of, of podcasts. Yeah. Um, and I think even just exploring channels like Spotify mm -hmm. um, and getting more video, uh, not video, sorry, voice ads out there, similar to what you were saying, is something we've been exploring. Yeah, we really love podcasts. Um, we didn't do as much this year. We did some last year. We had some learnings. I think, you know, major things that we'd want to improve on is that that authenticity of the read, yes. which is so challenging because it's so hard. Yeah, the voice you you, you <laughs> want so them hard. to tell it in their own voice, and then you go through yes. three revisions. And you're like, you're a podcast host, but it's still not where I want it to be. Um, so I think we're trying to get that infused more and more, um, and then making sure that it's got that attribution code so they can go and buy online it makes it all much easier to measure. Mm -hmm. um, but again. It's, it's, a, it's a medium that I love and also am a little bit critical of because the visual of our brand is also really important. And I imagine mm -hmm. that's the same yes. for apparel, right? Mm -hmm. When you're hearing about something, how could you hear about how cool it looks as well as you could see how cool it looks yes. um, or how delicious it is or how would you know what my product looks like unless we have a visual of it? So there's challenges, I think, with every medium. Mm -hmm. I think that's, yeah, that resonates for furniture. And, um, you know, we've talked about dabbling into podcasts and more voice type uh, mediums. And, you know, our pieces, you just really have to see them. And, you know, in many cases, people want to sit and feel, and feel them in real life as well. I think for Sunday, something that kind of, you know, where we've maybe been fortunate is within our brand ethos, we've been able to straddle that kind of high gloss through to more raw. Um, and that comes from our art direction and our creative direction. And, you know, we've, we've really been intentional around presenting our pieces through what we call a lived-in look. So that could be, you know, if we're on set um, for a shoot, uh, we will actually style our shots to have, you know, a glass that's half full or a book that's open, you know, a person or a pet that's also included. Um, really trying to strike that aspirational, but also attainable for our users. And then recently, um, we've just been going through a bit of a brand refresh. And at the core of that conversation has been, you know, how can these different styles live together? And I think we've been, we've tried to be very intentional again around we can have something that is, you know, what we would consider higher gloss, a conceptual, you know, kind of set up shot and have that live alongside um, UGC or something that our social media manager captured on her phone and have that feel um, and have that feel really good. And I, I think that brands are continuing to go into that path and not really kind of isolate, um, you know, what style shows up across platforms. Yeah, yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, so that brings us to the question of platforms or mediums or channels to watch for advertising moving forward. So. Are there any channels, we, I know we touched on podcasting, but are there any other channels you're experimenting with that you're finding success? 
with? Oh, I mean, we, we have to mention TikTok, of course, yes. right? Yes. <laughs> I, don't, I think we'd be remiss to not talk about TikTok. Um, and, you know, I think we're, we're seeing a lot of wins there, but also feel like there's so much more we could be doing and trying to, you know, continually learn what works best on that platform. Um, but it's, I think it is obviously the most dynamic and intriguing platform right now. But a hundred percent, yeah. Um, we've been doing a lot of experimenting on TikTok um, probably over the last five years. We've done our mix of hashtag challenges um, when those are really big. Um, we've done one day maxes, um, which we've seen a lot of success in. And I think most recently what we've started dabbling in is live stream shopping. So we are part of a beta program with TikTok where you can actually watch a live stream, um, have a host go through product and show it on the screen, and a pop-up will come right within the app and you're able to check out, see the product, swipe through different colors and check out right then and there. And so. I think right now that's a little bit of a learning phase, I would say. I think it's really not necessarily catching the customer at a point where they want to purchase, as opposed to being on a website or knowing that you're going into some kind of live stream shopping thing. But we've seen a lot of success also in terms of like engagement and really still kind of training and kind of teaching the customer um, how that works. So that's another interesting one, yeah. but I and love TikTok. It plants the seed too, because yeah. they might not be ready to buy right now, but right. they're thinking about exactly. it. Exactly, and right. I think that goes back to judging KPIs, right? Because right. I think the customer is probably seeing it and maybe they don't want to check out right then and there, but they've definitely seen it and are probably checking out later, yes. so. We've been, we've been experimenting on TikTok as well, I think common theme, um, both organically and on the paid side. And even within paid, we've experimented with, you know, setting up campaigns versus sparking content. Um, some tidbits of, I think, what's been working for us is we'll often put something uh, into TikTok organically and kind of see how it lands. And if we start to see that initial engagement, then we'll come in and, and spark it. I would say overall, comparing Sparking to campaigns, we see success in both, so we're actually running those side by side. Spark ads have actually resulted for us, surprisingly, with, I'd say, an overall higher conversion rate, whereas campaign, we've seen more engagement um, and reach. Um, can, you, can you tell us what Spark ads are for anybody who might not be familiar? Spark ad is you're going in and you're just, you're adding, it's kind of like, how you used to boost ads in Instagram or in Meta, it's doing that in TikTok. Um, where it's different uh, is that when you're sparking an ad, the sponsored um, like tag doesn't show up for the user. So often when you're looking at brands that have very high viewers or engagement, yes, it may have gone viral, but it's also possible they put some spend behind that. Um, it's just not signaled. So that's been successful for us as well. And something, Charlotte, that you shared that earlier that resonated was just kind of letting go and truly letting um, TikTok be an area of experimentation. So I'd say it's it's certainly our rawest footage. You know, our social media manager will be quick to jump on a trend. Um, you know, might pull in a meme from the office on top of that, which you just you wouldn't see in our other channels. Yeah. But we've been open. We've been open to playing in that space, and so far. Um, yeah, so far it seems to be working. Yeah, and I think where we didn't see a lot of success in TikTok is we tried to create, you know, a TikTok challenge in the back room. You know, yeah. and, and we tried to sit there with the TikTok team and ideate what the perfect challenge would be and then push it out and start seeding it with 
four different influencers and asking them to do something. And, and it just failed. It fell on its face. And, and that was something that we had to learn the hard way. We spent a ton of money on it, creating it with the TikTok team, whereas we would have been much better served just letting an influencer create something that felt right for them versus us trying to tell them how they're going to make music with a can of healthy pop and it's a whole mess. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the hashtag got hijacked. Oh, oh no. great. Oh, yeah, super yeah. fun. What um, happened? Well, uh, you know, the users catch on to when there's a trending tag, a hashtag, and when there's an official TikTok challenge to get more views on their own videos, they'll just use it. And so you get billions of impressions on something that wasn't actually your challenge. So then you have to, you know, filter through all of those to actually figure out what did I really pay for? Yes. Um, super fun. But, you know, you fail and you learn. And that was a couple years ago. So we're excited to be in a new phase of, of letting the TikTok way happen mm -hmm. and the users do their thing, which is much better performing in the end. Yeah. Yeah. The la the less you can put in a creative brief to an influencer, I think the best, yeah. or the better results you will yeah. get, for sure. Yeah. It's counterintuitive and it's hard yes. to do. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, Tyler, do you wanna talk through the examples just briefly here? Or, yeah, actually, I was gonna mention really quickly also, I mean, this all goes within TikTok, but I think where else we're seeing a lot of success and it's a little bit interesting, but is in, within Roblox. Um, so I think in the gaming space, we've been seeing a lot of success in, and we started um, activating on there by creating clothes that were for your avatar. So they're just virtual clothing that were replica or replicates of things that we sell in the store. So if you have a favorite PacSun hoodie, um, you can buy it in Roblox and you know put it on your avatar, which I think was in a very interesting way to kind of break in to Roblox. Um, and then we've also created our own game, and now we actually have a second game that just came out very recently that is doing extremely well. Um, so I think, again, just thinking outside of the box and really catching your customer where they're activating naturally um, and seeing where you can kind of make your own organic fit. And so Roblox has been really great for us as well. Um, but I think within TikTok, um, again, it's all about letting your guard down. It took many years, I would say, to get the trust of the executive team to kind of let go a little bit, um, get a little bit crazy, get a little bit raw, um, and again, put out stuff that you're not normally creating and feeling comfortable with. So um, we've done things like bloopers on set. This was with Emma Chamberlain. Um, we've also done Two Minutes With, which is rapid fire questions with her. Again, really working with your um, models and influencers and giving more of a unique and fun look that really wouldn't show up anywhere else. We've also... Um, focused heavily on employees within our store, whether it's doing unboxing of shipment and really having them take over our channel um, or just showing out outfits that they're wearing to work. Again, these have done extremely well, just showing a different face of the brand. Um, we've also used TikTok to um, do like a model casting, which is very interesting. So we called um, our audience to submit videos um, and we actually, for holiday this year, will be featuring you know all um, just customers within our campaign, which started on um, TikTok. And then lastly is just showing off our stores in a real 
raw and organic way. I think this one was very tricky because not all of our stores look perfect, right? <laughs> and I think what we always want to put out there is the best looking store. Right. Um, and so what we, when I started doing that, I think there was a lot of concern um, around, uh, like, we need to be having the hangers look a little bit better or their folds aren't perfect. Um, but actually what we saw is those videos actually do a lot better because they're real. They're what the customer is used to seeing when they go into the store. Um, and so those are kind of like our four just yeah. pillars on TikTok right yeah. now. It seems like authenticity is kind of the, yes. the mm -hmm. big movement right now. And I think con consumers today have a pretty good meter for BS when it comes yes. to that too. So <laughs> yeah. it's tricky. It's definitely a learning process. We've had a lot of conversation around shooting content in our stores, yeah. and it's come from a place where some of our showrooms, they're just not well lit. So yeah. it's like, no matter whatever the content is, it just doesn't translate as nicely as I think we would like it to. And with furniture, large pieces, hard to move around, you're literally moving a, you know, a room or a house. Um, we've also just had to let that go and have also seen that the engagement is there and you know, the, the, it, it, it's okay in that case. I know, yeah. the uglier the better. No, <laughs> yeah, just kidding. That's right, it doesn't have to be perfect. Um, we have about 10 minutes left, so I wanna open it up for questions. If anybody would like to come to the microphone here and ask a question about anything related to social advertising, if nobody wants to, that's fine. We can keep chatting, but I wanted to put it out there. So I found it interesting that what you mentioned for the kombucha brand that you're actually uh, targeting everybody across the spectrum and versus the others that have much more specified age category. How do you segment that population? What do you find is working for your brand that's helping you target each one specifically and, and be effective with, it, with each age category? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, there's no way we could possibly reach everyone, right? So we have to segment and we have to think about what are the audiences that, that work best for us. Um, in the digital space, it's easy to find your, your loyalists and your kombucha category considerers. Um, we have our first party data, of course. So that's like one group that's very, very tight. We find that people that are green enthusiasts, that can be of any age range. That's something that resonates. Um, we recently found an interesting recently divorced category. And you think about why is that working? They're experiencing a change in their lifestyle where they're reconsidering their choices. Um, that's a big category for us. People that are interested in home delivery, thing, convenience, they're gonna want that those 12 bottles or cans delivered to their front, front doorstep. Um, so there's ways that we look at it behaviorally and psychographically, like I mentioned, whether you're a Gen X or millennial or a Gen Z, you're someone that's interested in paying for the quality in the food and beverages you drink, and you're interested in gut health. Um, you're interested in organic, things like that. So that's, that's a way to call down the audience. You know, it's about 25% of the population that lives within that more interested health and wellness space. We, of course, would love to grab in the outer ring and things like out of home, the Dodgers brand partnership. We have a Ryan Seacrest partnership that we're really excited about. Those things are gonna be that outer ring that reach the masses and introduce kombucha to people that never considered it before. But when we think about podcasts or digital advertising, social media, programmatic, that's where we get really specific on our audiences mostly from a psychographic and behavioral standpoint so that we can reach people who are most interested in adding this beverage to their life. Good question. 
Anyone else? Come on, we're talking about TikTok. You've got to have questions. Yeah. Hello, my name is Andres. Uh, I work for an oral care company here in Chicago. And I'm just curious, because you guys mentioned the shop in TikTok. Um, and I'm curious if these social media shops, you have them available across the different platforms like Instagram, Facebook, and if you also activated the in-app purchase feature for them to make the purchase there as opposed to making the purchase on the website. Should I go? Yeah, go. Um, we do. Uh, we have the in-app option for TikTok, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. I think the most successful one that we probably see is within Instagram. Um, we tag every single post that we upload on Instagram um, with the product that's available. Um, for the most part, our Instagram catalog is, I would say, 90% of what's on our website. Um, so again, I think that's a really nice way to show similar to what you were saying with home, like a top on a normal person that isn't a model um, or an influencer um, and tag that product right then and there. And we see a lot of in-app purchases there. Um, you also can do it on TikTok and we have done it on TikTok. Um, I think less successful again, because it's more known as like an entertainment platform. I think Instagram slowly now becoming more of like a shoppable platform. Um, but again, we are still seeing some success in there. And with live stream shopping as well, it's been, um, you know, a really nice test there. So that's at least on our end. Yeah, we, we've done the same. So we've enabled it in Pinterest, Meta, and TikTok as well. We recently experimented with um, enabling shopping with our, our recent campaign. And again, I think also given our price point, um, you know, I'm not expecting somebody to come in and convert on a sofa directly from TikTok, but if they're clicking on it and getting a little bit more product information, then I would say the goal is achieved. Um, something that we have been, um, you know, disciplined around has been, we're, we're on Shopify Plus. We've gone in and curated the list of products that we want to be feeding into the platform. So we've based that on our top, like our top sellers. And then those are typically also mirrored in our um, creative um, across our campaigns. So those are matching up. And in the odd exception, when we're featuring something in a piece of creative that, um, you know, that wasn't turned on to the channel, then we just go in and enable it. Yeah, I think that's interesting too about the product description um, and seeing the price, because I think a lot of people think of just the conversion as the success, but I think the truth is everyone is exploring on social channels to figure out what they want um, potentially to purchase. So whether it's just clicking, seeing more colors, um, seeing what the price is, seeing other views of the product, I think that engagement is super important and I think just something that you would be missing out on without it, regardless of conversion. Yeah. Still really meaningful. Yeah. We have time for one more question. Anybody, any takers? I have a question. Yes. <laughs> so, I, so in one of the stats uh, yesterday in, in the presentation I gave was about from Google's own internal reporting showing that like 40% of search of Gen Z is now moving to Instagram and TikTok. Um, so just kind of your bellwether of the future of like how are you thinking about search when it comes to social, because it's just so different from traditional search. So just your take on, is it contextual? Like, how do you start to create moats for your brands when it comes to an entire generation that just wants to search more on social and not traditionally in Google? Yeah, I mean, I think for us, it's exactly what you said. We're, we're pivoting a lot to Instagram and TikTok. And again, 
finding the customer where they're naturally activating, which I think um, a lot of them actually aren't even going to the website anymore. I think um, you know they're probably getting an email and then going to Instagram and seeing if they can find that there. Obviously, we do still do have a lot for the, the website, but I think just in general, a, hi a hyper focus on um, social. But I feel like you guys probably can answer that better because I don't. I'm not too involved in like the search process from the brand side, but. Yeah, so for, for search for Google, for example, um, we're still heavily invested there. I'd say between Facebook and Google, it's where the majority of our media spend is today. And again, back to that product catalog, just being really intentional around what products we're serving up in search and the images along with that and say smart shopping campaigns. Um, yeah, we've just, I mean, search search is very important when people are looking for furniture. I think they're going into Google, probably typing something like modern sofa. And so um, to meet the customer where they're at as well, we've been going in and doing some work on our product names in Merchant Center and starting to ingest um, words like modern as well as colors that would meet a more kind of basic description like white, cream, black, instead of, you know, a, a carbon, which is our marketing <laughs> way of describing it. Yeah, no, it's interesting. And, and that speaks to like, you know, SEM used to be the way we went in search. And now we really have to think about social SEO. Um, and so it's, it's a dual path that I think we're on the front lines of right now. We're still, like you, spending a ton of our search focus on Google. Um, but realizing that we have to be playing in these other platforms where the consumer is shopping um, and searching and making sure that we have the SEO backend working well so that we're showing up when that happens. Wonderful. Well, thank you all so much. Hopefully this was a learning experience. I know I learned a lot, so thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.